In our last episode of The Problem of Evil, we saw how the scientific discoveries of the 19th century revealed a long history of natural evils, including multiple extinction-level events, the existence of ancient carnivorous giant monsters called dinosaurs, and the, the framing of Darwinian evolution as a violent competition where only the fittest survive. But now we enter into the 20th century, and it was in the 20th century that the capacity for human moral evils reached unimaginable proportions. Friedrich Nietzsche had famously written in the 1880s that God was dead, but he hadn't even lived to see the two world wars of the 20th century. This was the beginning of the age of nihilism. Maybe the problem of evil had won. Maybe God is dead. Maybe we are hopeless. It was in the midst of the two great wars that a Swiss reformed theologian named Karl Barth argued that it was actually in God's hiddenness where God is most paradoxically revealed. My name is Paul Anleitner. Thanks for listening to Deep Talks, exploring theology and meaning making. We are in part 14 of our Problem of Evil series. In this series, we're going through over 2,000 years of theological and philosophical history within the Christian tradition to try to help you navigate and to, to wrestle with your own theology around evil, suffering, the goodness of God, His omnipotence, His justice. And so my goal is just to be the tour guide to lead you through some of the most brilliant and important and influential thinkers in the long history of Christianity. Now, the typical advice I give to start each of the episodes in this series is go back and work your way through every single part. If you haven't started from the beginning, I'd say just start from the beginning and binge it over the course of a couple of weeks. Maybe you're just a few episodes behind, especially if you haven't listened to last week's episode, part 13 on the 19th century and the scientific discoveries that happened that, that really brought about new theodicy challenges for people like Karl Barth, who are heading into the 20th century and are now about to deal with, gosh, on top of all of these scientific discoveries and the challenges they created, they're about to deal with the two worst wars humanity had, has ever seen. I think to fully appreciate that, it would be in your best interest to go back and at least listen to that episode, go back maybe two, three episodes prior if you're not fully caught up. I think that's the way you'll get the most out of today's episode on the theodicy of Karl Barth. Karl Barth was born in 1886 in Basel, Switzerland. His dad was a preacher and theology professor. And after some rough and tumble early years in his youth, Karl Barth eventually decided to follow in his father's footsteps. After initially studying within the growing stream of Protestant liberal theology, Barth became overwhelmingly concerned with the direction of this theological movement. After his mentor, the famed liberal theologian Adolf von Harnack signed off on the manifesto of the 93 German intellectuals, the civilized world. 
This was a document which expressed support of the German military actions early in World War I. These actions are commonly known as the Rape of Belgium. So Bart was really concerned with how in the world could this movement, could this stream of theology, how could my very own mentor sign off on something which seems so anti-Christ? It was in the early years of his pastoral work that Bart chose to serve as a pastor, pastor of a blue-collar congregation in the country. It was during that time that he wrote his first commentary on Romans. And it was that commentary that, that garnered international praise and attention. After the First War, Bart went on to be a professor at several universities in Germany. Before World War II began, and even before Hitler seized power in Germany, Bart was a vocal opponent of the Nazi movement and saw the radical political movement already attempting to co-opt the German church into supporting their agenda. In 1934, Bart was the key leader in the writing of the Barman Declaration, which was a scathing theological rebuke of Nazi ideology, nationalism, and the unholy matrimony of German churches in the Nazi movement. Knowing what you know now of the Nazis and Hitler, you can imagine how dangerous making this kind of stand was. But to show you that this wasn't just some sort of general theological treatise that maybe could function as a sort of passive-aggressive rebuke to whoever the general dec the declaration could be generally applied to, Bart personally mailed a copy of the Barman Declaration directly to Adolf Hitler. He's got some guts, right? When Bart refused to pledge allegiance to Hitler, even when authorities granted him the opportunity to make modifications to the pledge, he lost his job as a professor in Germany and was kicked out of the country, where he, he then settled back in Switzerland and served as a professor of systematic theology at the University of Basel until his retirement in 1962. Bart was no stranger to the challenges that natural evil presented to the popular discipline of natural theology, and he certainly was well acquainted with the, the horrors of human moral evils in the world. So, what was Karl Barth's theodicy like? First, Barth rejected the Enlightenment's emphasis on reason and natural theology as the primary path to knowing God. We'll unpack a lot more of the theological reasons behind that later in the episode, but at this point, it's just important to note that, that Bart saw the growing emphasis on natural theology in the 19th and 20th century expressions of Protestant liberalism. He saw those as just completely misguided. These theologians looking for God in imminence forgot that God is wholly transcendent and wholly other than creation. Those looking for knowledge of God in the natural world, Bart thought they were misguided because knowledge of the transcendent God comes only in revelation. You have to admit, too, that seeing something like your own mentor, a leading thinker in natural theology, sign off on something that was so insidious as the, the German military actions at the beginning of World War I and the 
the things that happened in Belgium. I mean, you can read for it, just even Wikipedia, the rape of Belgium. And you, you'll, you can see and read for yourself the horror stories of this. So to think that natural theology could somehow lead a person to sign off on that, that was so perplexing and discouraging to Bart. There are few places, if we really want to unpack Bart's theodicy, that we could go to to really best understand it. Maybe one of the best places that we could start with is in his third volume of Church Dogmatics, a massive 13-volume systematic theology written over a 30-year period and on par with Aquinas' Summa Theologica and Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion in terms of its ambition, scope, and generational influence. This volume was written from 1948 to 1950, so it's, it's not long after the conclusion of the Second World War, and you have to imagine how that event shapes Bart and his wrestling with the problem of evil, especially as we see it in the third volume of Church Dogmatics. With the radical evils of World War II in mind, Bart insists that there, there is what he called an alien factor at work in creation, an, quote, entire sinister system of elements, end quote. He calls this Sinister force, das Nichtige, or loosely translated in English as that which is not. Bart sees the formlessness and the voidness, if you will, of Genesis 1-2. He interprets that and sees that as chaos. This chaos is all of the possibilities that God chose to not make actuality. It is this chaos, this nothingness that causes the separation in the relationship between humanity and God in the form of sin. The fall then, in a sense, was humanity's choice of das nichtige instead of the divine will. Das nichtige is a difficult concept to explain, but Bart tries to make clear that he doesn't mean that Das Nichtige is just the negative stuff we experience in creation. It's not just the things that we find unpleasant or painful or even maybe even create an experience of suffering that we don't like. No, for Bart, there is a two-fold character to the nature of God's created order. There is light and darkness. There's growth and decay. A yes for some will be experienced as a no for others. These are all part of God's ordering of reality. The the darkness, the decay, the no, and yes, even some of the pain and suffering that comes with that is what Bart called the shadow side of God's will. Now, this shadow side concept, this is The shadow side of God's will, the shadow side of God's creation, this is such an interesting idea from Bart. And, you know, maybe there's some precedent in Luther's, uh, Calvin, and, you know, Luther talked about the alien acts of God, and, 
you know, so there might be some precedent there. There could be, uh, you know, it's difficult to say. I was talking with some people that really enjoy BART, maybe they're experts in BART, on Twitter recently about whether or not there's any influence of the psychologist Carl Jung uh, and Carl Jung's concept of the shadow, whether in that in any way, shape, or form was an influence on BART. It could be. Uh, I don't think there's enough evidence to say definitively, but we do certainly know that BART had um, knowledge of who uh, Jung was. Um, BART's cousin, uh, what's his first name? Last name is Keller. Like uh, Adolf Keller uh, was um, studied Jung and was very, very close. Um, Bart considers Keller an influence in his life. So there could be some, some connection there, but this is this shadow side concept. This is a really interesting concept. What does Bart mean by the shadow side of God's will? Well, to steal a quote from Charlene P.E. Burns, who again, her book we've been using throughout this series, the shadow side is the quote, necessary and finite antithesis to the good side of creation, end quote. Bart believed that all that is exists in this contrast and antithesis. Challenging many other Christian interpretations of the fall, Bart even argues that the physical decay and death of our bodies are not evil. They are not part of the das nichtige within creation. No, these experiences, the breaking down of our bodies, even physical death and the decomposition that follows, this process is just part of the shadow side of creation. It's not the chaos of Das Nichtige. In Christ, God does not save us from physical death, but rather he saves us from sin, the devil, and the death of our relationship to God in Dashnishtige's chaotic nothingness. So for Bart, dying of old age just simply isn't evil. It's just the shadow side of God's good creation. Dying in the gas chambers at Auschwitz, that's evil. And that is the evil of nothingness, Dashnishtige. It is the evil that God does not will. It is the potentiality that God rejects for creation, and yet moral agents may still choose that which God rejects. This is what makes sin so insidious to Bart. In a sense, it is to say that we know what should be better than the Creator. We choose to bring about that which has been rejected by the Creator. To try and stay in keeping with his Reformed tradition, Bart believes that this nothingness, this chaos, this das nichtige is not a rival in terms of ultimate sovereignty, but it can be easy to miss how this isn't a sort of dualistic force on par with God. When Bart writes that this nothingness, this alien factor is, quote, utterly distinct from creator and creation. The antithesis, which is not merely within creation and therefore dialectical, but which is primarily and supremely the antithesis to God himself. End quote. 
you can see how this level of seriousness that Bart, Bart places on Das Nichtige, why it might lead some to claim that Bart is a, a hyper-dualist, almost, almost on par with the Gnostics. And yet, simultaneously, in other places, Bart writes that das, das Nistige is, quote, not a second god, nor self-created, end quote. This nothingness takes shape in the lives of human moral agents as sin. As you can imagine, by the level of seriousness Bart places on this malevolent alien factor, even bordering on accusations of hyperdualism. Bart takes seriously the reality of demons and Satan. The demonic is the antithesis of the angelic. The demonic emerges from that das nichtige, that no God said to the possibilities of creation. Demons are not fallen angels to Bart, as he believes some wrongly speculate. And Bart even says, you know what, guys, we don't really need to give much time and attention to our speculation about such things, but we only need to affirm that these principalities and powers exist and that we should have no partnership with them whatsoever. So what does Bart make of the work of Christ? And how does this relate to Das Nistige, the shadow side of creation, and the violence and suffering we see in both the natural world and among human moral agents. From very early on in Bart's writing, you can go all the way back to his commentary on Romans, Bart makes clear that trying to deduce God's character and nature via reason or through nature is essentially worthless. Humanity cannot know God from the bottom up but only from the top down through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, whom the scriptures bear witness to, is the only word of God. It is only through the light of Christ that we can begin to know God in his creation. This sort of rejection of natural theology gives those who were perplexed by the previously unimaginable levels of violence and catastrophe described by Darwinian evolution, a way to counter the conundrum. The new geology and evolutionary biology that emerged in the 19th century, it doesn't have to tell us anything about God, if you follow Barth's school of thought, because only Christ tells us anything about God at all. But, and here's the key for Barth, once one is in Christ, they can now begin the journey of properly interpreting the world. Any other effort is worthless religion, which Bart sees as the bottom-up efforts of the self-righteous to justify themselves. No, instead, Bart, he counters or compares what he calls worthless religion with what proper theology is. And proper theology, according to Bart, is the top-down self-disclosure of a gracious God to humanity in Christ Jesus. Outside of Christ, Bart believes we lack the ability to properly interpret the shadow side of creation. And in this way, he draws from the influence of the 19th century Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. You can see this sort of Kierkegaardian influence in Bart when Bart concludes that the, the evidence for God's existence or 
the reality of Christ as Lord would only ever be ambiguous at best if we were to just look at using our faculties of reason, the, the sum total of all that we would perceive as a sort of pros and cons list in the cosmos for things like the existence of God or the lordship of Jesus Christ. So for Bart, we can't even properly evaluate what would be a pro or a con on the list of pros and cons for God's existence. We can't even properly evaluate what is good or evil. We couldn't even name that in creation outside of the light of Christ. So for Bart, this is a very, this is what makes Bart, what people sometimes call radical orthodoxy, neo-orthodoxy. Because Bart really tries in his own way to put Jesus Christ at the center of theology. For Bart, it's a Christological—all theology is, is, is Christological in nature. It starts with Christ. It's, it's central that we begin there. That's the only place we can begin. And even natural theology, these other disciplines, philosophy— in a sense, Bart believes that they're worthless outside of the light of Christ. Now, of course, we can get into, and, and maybe this is a, a proper to critique to bring up now, whether or not Bart just completely misunderstands what proper natural theology would be, where it's not just we're just deducing something in creation using faculties of reason that are separate from Christ. One could say that the proper understanding of natural theology going all the way back to Aquinas, you know, that properly understood is that the only things that are true, good, and beautiful in creation are those which participate in Christ anyway. So when we study the natural world, when we use our faculties of reason and wisdom, that we are in a sense participating in Christ. But I still think, even with that critique, Bart has a really good counter-argument. The counter-argument is, it's kind of like, do you think, and I, you know, here's your thought experiment for today. I love thought experiments, right? When you look up at a, a beautiful sunset, are you perceiving that sunset to be beautiful because there's some sort of abstract quality of beauty that we then impose upon the sunset? Or do you think or rather instead, is beauty defined by your experience of the sunset? So we know what beauty is because we actually see the sunset. Maybe, let me phrase it another way. Do we look at the cross of Jesus Christ as a selfless, as a good, a true and beautiful act because that cross has suddenly pinged some pre-existing categories that we have, these, this radar that we have for what's true, good, and beautiful? Or do we only know what's true, good, and beautiful because of the light of Christ? You know, it might be a chicken or the egg argument, but I still think it, it warrants proper consideration and healthy evaluation of Barth, Bart's argument here. Do we know anything about what's good or evil, pro or con, outside of the revelation, the self-disclosure of God in Jesus Christ? For Bart, it's in the light of Christ that we can properly name what is das, das nichtige. We can't even name that. We can't name what is evil, malevolent. We can't even properly discern what might just be, hey, this might be the shadow side of creation. It might be something we don't enjoy like the suffering of uh, our bodies as we get older and we decay. It's like, 
Did Jesus's feet ever hurt from walking in those likely sandals or barefoot all day? He probably experienced that. Did he, did his skin cells ever, you know, break down like all of our skin cells do? Did his hair ever fall out? You know, that's the shadow side of creation. And so maybe we won't even be able to properly interpret what we consider just be the shadow side of creation versus what is das nichtige outside of the light of Christ. Now, this is where having gone through the entirety of our series is going to be of benefit to you because as you're hearing this, maybe you're already connecting some dots and you go, man, Bart sounds a little bit like this guy or this philosophical school of thought or this particular theological stream. And hopefully you're making those connections because one connection we need to address is the connection between Immanuel Kant's critique of pure reason. We covered Immanuel Kant several episodes ago. Immanuel Kant's critique of pure reason and Bart's pessimism about uh, reason, about natural theology. So if you remember back to Immanuel Kant, Kant is an Enlightenment thinker in the heyday of the Enlightenment's emphasis on rationalism. Kant's a guy going, hang on, let's pump the brakes here because I don't know if we have just pure reason. I don't know if we have access to the universe in the way that we think we do. We may know the phenomena we experience, but we cannot reliably say that we know things themselves behind our subjective experience of these phenomena. And Bart is in this school of thought that sees there being significant limitations to the scope of reason. So again, if you remember, like for Kant and guys like he and, and Schleiermacher, you have this phenomenological world, the phenomenological, the physical domain in which we can use our faculties of reason and empiricism to properly describe what happens in that domain, but we cannot properly speak of, we cannot properly evaluate what exists in the noumenal realm, the, the spiritual domain, all right? So if you picture that school of thought, this is, this is certainly an influence on Bart. There's this divide between the physical phenomenological world and the noumenal and, and this, this divide is really crucial because for guys like Kant and then later Schleiermacher, and then I know we didn't do a standalone episode on, on, on Kierkegaard, um, but really I promise at some point we will cover Kierkegaard in some other series. He kind of comes up quite a bit. That for each of them, there, there's this mechanism that is super cognitive. It's, it transcends reason alone that enables us to have at least some level of access, but we have access in a way that we should say, that, that makes us carry it with an epistemological humility, that we confess that there might be, there are limitations to the phenomena we experience, that there's a subjective element to it. For Kierkegaard, like the, the bridge between our, our knowledge that we have in the phenomenological and what we can know about the eternal, the only way that we do that is through faith, through a leap of faith, through, a, through this, this trust, this emptying trust, this passing through despair, that that's the only way that we can actually say we have 
knowledge. And it's in the subjective for Kierkegaard that this domain of knowledge, this knowledge of the noumenal, to use Kantian terms, it, this is how we have access to it. And Bart very much is in keeping with this tradition, albeit with his own spin, maybe his own particular reasons for it. So for Bart, the, the ontological difference between the transcendent God and the limited, imminent human, it, it makes proper knowledge of that noumenal realm impossible, except through Christ, who is both fully God and fully human. So Bart, again, very Christocentric. Bart sees Christ, who is fully God and fully human, as the necessary ontological bridge between transcendence and imminence. This is a profound idea from Bart. It is so deep. Yeah, it's not without precedent, but the way that Bart frames it, it's, it is. It's, it deserves our attention and for us to ruminate on this insight from Bart. For Bart, it's Christ who saves humanity from our trajectory towards that nothingness, towards the das nichtige. You're getting a lot of German here today. In his complete obedience to the Father's will, Jesus never participated in das nichtige. And in our participation in Christ, in faith, our trajectory towards that chaos and nothingness of das nichtige is intercepted and undone. So this is, for, this is for Bart, the nature of true theology, because it's about the dissension, the top-down movement of God's revelation in Christ to us. And, and for Bart, it's not even so much an emphasis on faith in, in the way that Kierkegaard places this, you know, this real, what becomes known as existentialism later, this real existentialist emphasis on our response. That's huge for Kierkegaard. It's the movement, it's the decision to follow Christ. And yes, Bart acknowledges that there is a there is a element, obviously, of faith of human participation in this. But for Bart, the central saving feature that that keeps us from that what would have been inevitable trajectory in Dasnistige is Christ's movement towards us. It is Christ's substitution for us. It is Christ stepping in. It is Christ bridging the gap. So this is what keeps Bart, you know, very much in that Reformed tradition, because Bart can say, outside of the grace of God, we cannot see the saving lordship of Jesus at all. So even Bart, you could say, Bart even has kind of a low view of history, especially when it comes to, well, could we properly assess using historical documents and, you know, evaluation of the sources that Jesus is Lord? Bart goes, no, you don't. You only see Jesus as Lord through faith. You only would see things like, you know, apologetic arguments, for example, that appeal to, for example, one that, you know, when I, I do find helpful, I will confess that. Apologetic arguments about how the apostles, uh, you know, died believing they had seen the resurrected Christ, and why would they do that? And is Christ a real person of history? Those sorts of apologetic debates. Bart just goes, forget it. Those have no value outside of faith in Christ. Like Martin Luther, Bart believed there was a paradoxical hiddenness to God's self-disclosure. 
a crucified Christ, that doesn't make any sense as a reasonable picture of an omnipotent and all-good God. But there is where we really need to shift from thinking about the metaphysical speculations on Dasnistige and the shadow side and begin to see Bart's more pastoral, dare I even say existential theodicy. It's a theodicy that ends up leaving a profound impact on the theodicies of subsequent thinkers in the 20th century. Everyone from Dietrich Bonhoeffer to Jürgen Moltmann to Martin Luther King Jr. and even to Latin American and black liberation theologians like James Cone and Dwight Hopkins, who I had on the podcast back in episode 66. All of these people are deeply and profoundly influenced by Bart's crucified Christ theodicy. In Church Dogmatics 2, Volume 1, Bart wrote, quote, The true God is the hidden God, end quote. It is in the suffering and crucified Messiah where we find God's only source of self-disclosure to Bart. In the suffering of the cross and the vindication of the resurrection, we can find how to existentially address our own experiences of suffering. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus point us to the now and the yet to come of the kingdom of God. It was this hidden God, this crucified God, that Bart took consolation in when in the spring of 1941, his son Matthias died at the age of 20 after a rock climbing accident. Bart took on the painstaking task of preaching at his own son's funeral. The scripture text that he preached from was 1 Corinthians 13, 12. In the German translation, Bart read from, the verse reads something like this. For now we see through a glass in an enigmatic word, but then face to face. This had evidently been a passage that his son, who was beginning his studies in theology when he tragically died, was very fond of. Bart says in that mournful sermon, quote, Because God's grace has come to help us in our misery through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, thus it is so. Wherever and however we live our life, with all of its hopes, weaknesses, and secrets, both are true, both deeply and indissolubly united with each other, the now, but also the then. They are not separate from each other, but entirely together. The now, where we see very well and understand everything, yet we do not know at all what everything is like in reality. And the then, where we will see everything clearly and where all will be glorious. The now, a mirror in which everything is turned upside down, an enigmatic word, which certainly gives us an answer, but at the same time remains the most difficult question. And the then, where we will not only be known by God, but we ourselves will know him no less fully than he knows us. 
end quote. Wow. I mean, this is, this is such a, just, it's really an emotional thing to read as you imagine the situation for Carl Bart and his family. Later on, Bart also says this in the same sermon at his son's funeral, quote, is by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that the now and the then are together in such a way that no power in heaven or on earth can separate them again. For it is he alone who in his bitter death on the cross and in his glorious resurrection has bound the now and the then together so that even now there is no mirror or enigmatic word that does not have standing behind it the clarity of that seeing face to face. And every single beaming ray of the future glory of God will be nothing but a particular turning and adjusting of the reflection before which we now stand, a particular resolving of the riddle we are now trying to figure out. In our thoughts about Matthias, we do not want to put ourselves in any other place than precisely at this border. He has now crossed over it, and we are still here. But we are not far from each other if we put ourselves at this border. In Jesus Christ, there is no distance between now and then, between here and there, however profoundly they are separated. Our Matthias, just as he really was, is in Jesus Christ, yet very differently than the way he used to live with us and we with him. He is the same, yet he has become completely different because Jesus Christ has taught us about both, about life and death, death and life. We may now therefore remember our Matthias and thus speak about him. End quote. You know, just listening to this sermon now, to the excerpts from this sermon, it, it helps to frame even the very beginning of this entire series. I, I started this entire series after um, being at a funeral with a tiny coffin of a, a, a boy that was much younger than Matthias. And uh, it's important that we frame all of our efforts to to deal with the, you know, the philosophical and the theological side of the problem of evil, to not separate that from the emotional experience of the problem of evil. And you can see that even if you have disagreements with Bart, you can see it in this sermon. Here is a moment of incredible sorrow and a time of mourning. And yet woven within this, within the, the sort of the existential good news, within the the sort of uh, addressing of the emotional weight of the moment in the world in the room that that day is this profound theology and philosophy and they come together and this is why it's so important we keep coming back to this periodically we want to keep coming back to the real situations not just abstract concepts about evil and suffering the world not simply those but to see how those are deeply woven within our emotional responses. For Karl Barth, to be in Christ is to be situated squarely within the boundary of the now and the yet to come. The future glory of God to come after the judgment of God and the age to come will be that, that tuning, that adjusting of the reflection in that mirror, the thing that we see dimly, the riddle 
the enigma that we are trying to understand and unpack, the trying to solve and figure out. It won't be until that future glory of God that we experience in the age to come that we will fully see what we now only see in part. One critique of Bart's theodicy has been how functionally difficult it would be to sort through what is simply the shadow side of creation versus what is das Nistige. And of course, anytime someone wants to attribute significant power to evil as a force that may be functioning outside of the will of God, there will be charges of hyperdualism. But there is also a real attraction to Bart's theodicy for those Perplexed by evolution and how death could have existed long before Adam and Eve, Bart's The Odyssey gives you a possibly appealing solution. You don't need to defend or deny evolutionary theory because nature doesn't reveal anything about God at all. And even for those who are in Christ, you should be able to look at the world and see that some kinds of suffering, decay, and even death are just the often undesirable shadow, but nonetheless designed order that God had for creation. Secondly, Bart's Theodicy invites us in our experiences of suffering to actually see a God who suffers too. And many people find this to be immensely comforting, even if it doesn't answer all of their questions. It may be that for those in the gas chambers of the Holocaust or those mourning the death of a young man like Bart's own son, it may be that the most profound moments of grace, those moments where we're sitting in the border between here and there, between now and the yet to come, that the revelation of God in Christ is most deeply experienced. Thanks for listening to today's episode. You know, today's episode wouldn't be possible to do and to do ad-free without the support of people on Patreon in the Deep Talks Patreon community. I want to give extra special thanks to Jesse, BJ, Carolyn, Eli, Josie, Justin T, Luke H, Michael H, Paul S, Paul R, Sam and Nicole, Sarah R, Sean C, Stephen M, Taylor S, Tim K. Special thanks to those of you giving at the Theology 201 level. Can't do this without you guys. Your generosity is so, so meaningful to me. Thank you so much. I love getting to do what I'm doing in this podcast and the other articles and videos on YouTube that I'm working on to help people, anybody with an internet connection, be able to have access to what I hope is perceived as quality, theological, philosophical education to help us navigate some of our deepest questions about life, God, meaning, and purpose. And so, uh, man, to have your support just means, it means the world to me. If you want to become a member of the Deep Talks Patreon community and support this work that I'm doing, I would invite you to do so. We're still short of my initial tier goal of getting to 300 supporters that can support weekly ad-free episodes. So if you felt so inclined and led to support it, I would uh, gladly receive it and, and be quite thankful for it as well. 
Um, if you if you get plugged in to the Deep Talks Patreon community, you'll find things like bonus Q and A episodes, articles, um, blogs, um, boy, a whole bunch of other stuff that you might find helpful as an additional thank you for those of you that are maybe wanting to to go deeper into this kind of subject matter. So you can find out more about that in the link provided in the show notes, the description of this podcast, and even for as little as two bucks a month, that would make a big difference. Um, So thank you for considering that. You can also support this podcast by leaving a review and subscribing on Apple Podcasts, even if that's not the place you primarily go to to listen to podcasts, because it's still numerically, or I should say statistically, the number one place right now. People are still going to discover new podcasts, to listen, to subscribe to things. So if you subscribe and you leave any sort of review that you want to leave there, it helps other people discover this. Uh, I don't do a bunch of advertising or things like that. So the only way other people find out about this is by word of mouth or by, you know, stumbling across it uh, as it's hopefully getting highly reviewed. So thanks for considering to do that. Finally, the thing I most enjoy, um, even beyond like recording these sorts of lectures and conversations, is actually getting to have interaction and dialogue with you about the subject matter, about the things that you're processing. So for those that are in the Deep Talks Patreon community, again, keep messaging me, send me your messages. We always have a forum available for each episode for people that want to maybe have dialogue with each other and other like-minded people that are curious and they're honestly searching for answers to these sorts of questions and trying to sort their own thoughts out. The Deep Talks Patreon forum is a great place to do that. But you can also reach out to me on Twitter at Paul Anleitner. I'll leave a link in the show notes and the description as well. I try to respond to as many questions over there as possible. I respond to everything on uh, Patreon. But for me, I just love having the dialogue. I want to hear what's what's resonating, what's been helpful to you. I'd love to hear your disagreements. Where uh, where do you stand right now on, on Bart's The Odyssey? Did you find it helpful? Has it solved some problems for you? Have you found there to be holes or gaps in it that just don't don't make sense, that, that just don't work for you? Uh, I'd love to hear all of those things. So reach out to me on those platforms. You can also find me on Instagram. Um, do you have a Facebook page? I'm not really active over there uh, that much, but uh, certainly you can reach out to me on those places as well. And until next time, we'll talk again soon.